0: real estate prices, particularly residential real estate prices, are they gonna be up? Are they gonna be down or flat over the coming years? Everyone wants to know. And it depends on a variety of factors. Interest rates, work from home, work from anywhere, internet connectivity and actual speed of the internet, supply of housing, demand, all to answer this question, should I stay or should I go, should I rent? Well, it depends on the market and the geography and all the above, and where do we see housing prices? Today, we'll try to answer that. Are they up, down, or will they stay flat? I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money, and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying and advising American families, including those who started late on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. What are the two biggest markets in the United States, economically speaking? And the answer pretty simply is the U.S. stock market and then real estate. But residential real estate doesn't get quite the coverage. There's something about it. And I think it's just because stock prices move every single day. So they create their own news cycle. And you hear about investment successes and failures and they happen quickly. So it's easy to cover. So if you think of, if we look at it from a, Who gets the coverage? It's the the stock market. The stock market is the Kardashian of the finance world. They're always on the front page, always fascinating, always on the cover. And then the housing market or real estate, even though everyone cares about it and everybody knows it, because it's not minute to minute to minute, it's kind of like a B-list celebrity. It's kind of like if the market were... The Kardashians, the housing market, or the stock market, where the Kardashians, the housing market might be, Jenna Fisher, who is the who is from the Office, so she's almost A-list, and but maybe not on the cover of every magazine like the Kardashians. Uh, if you don't know uh, Jenna Fisher is, she's very cool and probably on her way to becoming A-list, but was the best analogy I could think of. So with that, I want to cover real estate today. And it's it's prompted because I, of course, get questions all the time about real estate, but I had a couple that I've worked with for a lot of years. They used to live in Atlanta that lives in LA now, and they've been uh, renting a place for a long time. And they've been kind of looking at, hey, wait a minute, when's the housing market going to correct or drop? And then I want to go buy, then they want to go buy a place. So it's it's the question that we all have around timing. And when you're talking about timing, you're thinking about where a price is headed. So I wanted to kind of get through this concept of whether housing, we see housing going up or staying flat for a while or going down. And we've just gone through a year where housing has had its biggest jump in the record of the case shiller Home Price Index. Now case shiller only goes back to the late 80s, but still, since the 1980s, almost a 15 full percent housing jump is the biggest jump we've seen in the history of keeping track. And arguably, with the housing market as big as it is, think about the jump in 15% of a multi-trillion dollar market is enormous. The question is, where do we go from here? Because we just lived through this very, very disruptive period of economic time. It hurt some prices and it really lifted some prices and when it comes to housing that was a big part of the lift conversation now first of all let's take a look at a stock of these the markets that we were just comparing as we opened up the podcast today and then what's the total value of the, the u.S stock market well if you look at every single stock this is all the big stocks on the on the SP 500 and then all the OTC companies so small companies everything that's not listed in the SP 500 you get this just whopping number of almost 47 trillion dollars. Now remember, obviously that changes every single day with the markets. But if you look at the S&P 500 and you go to the main general market that we look at in the United States, the S&P 500 value is about $36 trillion. So we're going to start there and assume that the U.S. stock market, the biggest 500 companies that get the most press and the most coverage, and the most prominent, most well-known, $36 trillion. Interestingly, if you take – and Zillow did this exercise very recently and just published this through uh, in 2021, essentially bundled together all home prices in the United States. And we have all been on Zillow, and it gives you a zestimate about what your house is worth, your neighbor's house. And they put it together in one bulk Basket if you will to give the total housing stock in the United States and that number interestingly came out to Almost exactly what the u.s. Stock market is with the S&P 500 36.2 trillion dollars for the value of all homes again your home my home and our neighbor's home Over the past year and this is for really just through 2020 and we saw this massive drop in housing prices for a brief period of time and then this huge rise in housing prices We have seen the value of housing stock together and aggregate go up by two and a half trillion dollars, two and a half trillion dollars over, let's call it the past year or so. That's a 7% increase. Now, that that was from Zillow adding all the aggregate houses together. Now, the Case-Sheller Home Price Index that you'll hear that gets reported once a month is a little bit different. It looks at more recently sold housing transactions, so it gives you an eye on what houses are selling for and it and it backs it into an index that gives us the Case-Shiller home price index. It's not a value of all homes. It gives us a baseline in how much housing prices are changing. If you look at a more recent number, the Wall Street Journal just published as of April home prices and again we don't get this data daily and it's very much lagging, but if you look from April of 2020 to April of 2021, that's where you see this 14 to 15% gain in the Case-Shiller Home price index, two separate ways of looking at it. But I like the the way that the Zillow study equates housing in aggregate in the United States. And if you think about it, housing is so important to your balance sheet. For most families, you're going to look at, particularly those looking at retirement or early retirement, you're going to have something saved and invested typically in markets, stock market, bond market, publicly traded, you may have some private equity or private assets, and then you're going to have real estate. Now that could be commercial or rental real estate, but a huge part of the American balance sheet is the value of your home. So I really like the way Zillow aggregates all this data, by the way, just in the interesting category, where are the biggest housing markets? Well, they really follow for the most part by state size and i think you get an extra bonus or boost in prices for coastal states because we know water for property is extraordinarily expensive so it's no wonder that california is number 1 aggregate housing prices of 7.8 trillion number 2 new york 2.8 trillion state of florida 2.2 trillion texas is number 4 but because we have super high end housing markets in places like massachusetts the tiny state of mass comes in at number five at $1.3 trillion. Now, let's take a look at why housing prices have changed so much and what are the real drivers for home prices that can help us think about this longer term. Where are prices going over the next year and three years and five years? Well, the big drivers, of course, in the housing market are interest rates, then the supply of how many homes are out there, literally construction or lack of construction, the economy in general, how confident people are feeling, and the mobility, whether we're able to easily pick up and move. And all of that has changed dramatically in the last year and a half. COVID is this responsible catalyst for so much of it. But long before COVID began to impact housing. There's been another trend over the last 10 years and the last 20 years that is perhaps the most important of all. And that has to do with the number of homes we're building in the United States. We tend to think of homes as something that we build and it just lasts forever. Because we'll live at a home and we'll sell it and we'll drive by it and say, I used to live there. And 20 years later, oh, we used to live there. But the reality is that homes don't last forever. After 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years, they fall into such disrepair if they're not maintained that they have to be torn down or they get burned down or they get hit by a hurricane. They are very long standing structures, but they're not permanent. Housing economists will say that we need about one and a half million homes per year to keep up with homes that just kind of go away and disrepair, crumble. So just to stay level with demographic growth and the demand for housing, supply needs to be around a million and a half homes per year. What led to the housing bubble is we were actually building more than that in any given year. We were well over two million houses per year, brand new. So we actually created a little bit of an oversupply. The financial crisis hit. So did home building. It hit a brick wall. One of the most memorable economic statistics that is imprinted on my brain is that new home construction or housing starts didn't just slow down in the financial crisis. It hit the side of a mountain. It went from nearly two and a half million down to 400,000. That's an over an 80% drop in one of the most important, largest markets in the U S economy. And we've really never recovered. We had a long period of time where we were well under a million new houses a year, which started to create this undersupply of homes, not right away, But if we just look at longer periods of time, we go back to from 1968, again, when the population was a lot smaller in the United States to the year 2000, we built on average one and a half million new housing units per year on average. But if you look at the year 2001 to 2020, about half of that time was before the great financial crisis. And then really ever since 2008, we're just starting to play real catch up. We only averaged about 1.2 million homes. So that's about 300,000 homes per year. We were underbuilding for nearly 20 years. 300,000 times 20 years, now we're talking about 6 million. Well, no wonder that the National Association of Realtors report that we are in a once in a generation housing dearth. We're five and a half million homes shy of economic or housing equilibrium. That's a real shortage. And it's a huge reason why we've seen housing prices move higher over the last year and a half. Coupled with that, because of COVID, the Federal Reserve, in order to help the economy through, essentially took interest rates to zero. That took mortgage rates to the lowest they've ever been in the history of the planet. Take the undersupply of homes and lower interest rates, which makes borrowing money a lot cheaper so your home or mortgage payment is much less per hundred grand you spend it on a house. And all of a sudden you have this formula for housing prices to just explode. It's a huge part of why we are where we are today. Now, add into that, to me the even more fascinating cross current that has to do with the sheer utilization of the square footage that you're buying when you're buying a house. It's no longer just the kitchen and the living room, and the dining room and the bedroom. Jack and Jill bathroom and the master. No, no, no. In-law suite, no, that was so 1980s. Today it's where's my office? Because where's my office is no longer, hey, I want my private space and I'm really never gonna use it, to I might be in there every single day of the week. I might be in there two, three, four days a week, 30, 40, 50% of my working hours. And that is the trend that COVID was the real catalyst for. COVID, obviously, massive health crisis. The pandemic took millions of lives. But in that period of time, we were forced to, in some respects, to learn to work from home. I think work from anywhere is probably a better way to look at it. But really, we went from office to home in almost a mandated way. So we learned how to do it. Work from home used to be 7%. So before COVID, If you go back to 2019, about 7% of private industry workers were able to work from home or telework full scale. Seven. In April of 2020, the percentage of workers working from home hit 70%. Think about that. We went from 7% to 70%. It's a a seismic shift. And while that 70% number has declined because we're now migrating back to the office, employers and employees have been forced to rethink their workspaces. Now, not every industry is a fit for this, and we've seen some headlines recently. Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan said, hey, we're going to do it the old way, and everyone needs to be back in the office. And that's great for Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan. But the vast, vast majority of companies in the United States are doing some sort of work-from-anywhere hybrid work situation. I think the model of the future... And by the way, not all financial companies are doing this. Citigroup said that the bulk of their employees are going to be able to work two days from home, three days from the office, a hybrid model. Technology companies, and depending on the industry, some industries are a little easier to work from home. But according to the Pew Research Center, what are the industries that are most easily able to really work from home and not be in an office? Well, number one is banking and finance. Number two is tech. 84% of... Banking and finance employees have the ability to be able to work from home. 84%. 84% of technology employees also have the ability to work from a home office. As you can imagine, on the other side of the spectrum, retail, at the very bottom of that list, only 16%. I don't know how you can work in retail and actually be at the house. The reality is not everyone in retail is actually on the front lines of retail. So even in retail, there's jobs that can still be, done from home or done from a call center or a call center that might be in your home office, manufacturing and construction, same way, only about 22% of that group hospitality, only 23%. And then healthcare only 33%. But even 33% of a massive industry like healthcare is still millions of people able to now work from their home office. I think where we land on this is probably the Google model, and I think of it as a 206020. 20 The 206020 20 work model is 20% of employees will probably have to be in the office all the time. So call it traditional five days a week. 20% of people probably are able to totally work from home. And the other middle part, 60% of the workforce, I think, will do end up, end up doing what Google does, which is work some from home, some from the office, the 20 60, 20 model. Now, so what does this all mean? It means that in a very, very quick or short period of time, because we went from 7% to 70%, we'll probably land somewhere in the 50, 60% range of people that are really able to have a very real need for dedicated space in your residential real estate, your private home to actually work. So the value, the utility of your home now just went up dramatically over the past year. I think it's a big reason why housing prices jumped so dramatically over the past year and a half. Now, of course, we saw some implications of this work from home from in the stock market as well. Now, I'm not saying run out and buy or sell any of these companies. I'm just these are great examples of how technology helped facilitate work from home. And we all know the story of Zoom. Zoom is probably the poster child for work from home, but you can see these are stocks that have moved 400 plus percent since the end of 2019. CrowdStrike, another example, in the 400 plus range. DocuSign, up over 250%. So companies like these not only enabled the work from home phenomenon and the possibility to do that, but it fueled it, which leads to another piece of the equation that doesn't get a lot of press, and that is the thought of geographical unboundness, geographic unlocking, where really at any given point a person, or in this case an employee, could live not just at their home, but really their home anywhere and still be working. No longer do I have to be tethered to expensive cities like New York or San Francisco or Boston. And I, and I was recently in New York, uh, and I will tell you that the thought of paying double or triple or quadruple most other cities and also having to endure what just continues to be a, just a construction zone. Where you can hit four or five potholes in one block, let alone go from LaGuardia to where you're trying to get in the city. In fact, even in LaGuardia, I I, went to, I think it was Terminal D. Realize that my flight was leaving for Terminal C. There's no way to get to Terminal C. You can't walk because it's under construction like it has been for like a decade. So I had to go out of the terminal, down to the tarmac, get on a bus, take the bus out to the tarmac, take a left, proceed to my other gate. We had to stop four separate times for giant airplanes to slowly leave their gate and go onto the runway. So it took me 20 minutes to get to my gate on a bus, unload me on the tarback. walk back up a wooden planked plywood staircase to get into my terminal to then walk to my gate. Still don't see how people pay extra for that, but I know New York has a lot of energy and I do like New York. I just can't imagine living there. God bless you if you do. One thing I forgot to mention, we're going to talk about the best states to live on a recently published list from Bankrate that takes a lot of this into account. Affordability, wellness, culture, weather, and crime. What's the very best state to work in? Well, (laughs) it's not going to be New York. I'll give you that preview. We'll get there in a minute. So you couple low interest rates with an under supply, a five and a half million unit deficit. By the way, two million of those are single family. Over a million are multi-unit or dual unit. Than about two and a half million units shy on multi-units that have, let's call it five units or more. It is not just the National Association of Realtors that say we have a housing supply, Freddie Mac does as well. Now their number is closer to four million units, but regardless of that number, it's still millions and millions of units shy on housing. Now couple that with even greater utility of your home, because now it includes an office, And you have a recipe for housing prices to continue to have a tailwind. One more variable to consider in this equation, and this goes back to the geography of housing and where we can work, is that so much of this depends on something as simple as we almost take for granted today, and that's a really good or strong internet connection. If you have slow internet, you really can't do video chat if you've got fast internet in the United States and most urban centers do, it's just enough to make zoom tolerable. People are still fuzzy, but for the most part, it's just good enough for people at work to feel connected. Still not as good in my opinion, as being actually together as humans in a room or a building, but it's a pretty close second. That will continue to get even better in the big urban centers as internet speeds increase. The biggest gain though we'll probably see is that all the areas in the United States, and really for the world for that matter, outside of the urban centers that don't have really fast internet. And that's a huge, huge part of the nation that's changing with things like Starlink constellation and what Elon Musk's company is doing by blanketing the earth with low earth orbit satellites and what Amazon's doing, blanketing the Earth with their own cluster of low-Earth-orbit satellites, to essentially circle the entire globe in really high-speed internet, even if you are in a cornfield in the Midwest, in a stream in Montana, on the middle of a ship fishing in the Pacific Ocean, or a remote island in the Galapagos. Over the next several years, as internet speeds get fast everywhere, we're going to see even more of that geographic unlocking. Again, that's going to impact housing prices. I'm going to put this all together in a minute. But first, let's talk about what housing prices do typically relative to general inflation. If you look back over the last 20 years of housing data, it shows us that housing prices have been, on average, about 2% over inflation. So if inflation is 2%, that means housing prices typically would grow around 4%, 2 two above. If inflation is flat in a given year, we'll see housing on average grow about 2%. You know, we've had some anomalies during the housing crisis. Housing prices fell dramatically, certainly not above inflation, well below. And in the last year and a half, housing prices have jumped dramatically higher than inflation. I think where we're headed over the next three to five years, where we're still not going to be able to catch up with the undersupply of housing, we're very likely gonna fall somewhere in between the recent rise we just saw and our historical 2% above inflation, probably somewhere in the middle. Let's call it 3% to 4% above inflation. So we have inflation at 3%, 4% above that would be 7% for housing in a given year. If inflation's 2%, 2 or 3%, we could see housing prices rise 4% or 5%. So there's no perfect answer here. But I think the trend over the next several years will be housing prices above their 20 year historical trend, which has been around 2% above whatever inflation is. Of course, I think this has all sorts of implications for home supply companies and do it yourself retailers. But the question here, we're trying to solve today is what's the value of your home today and is it going to be up, down or flat over the next several years? So you have all these cross currents that impact housing, and most of them are tailwinds. Perhaps the biggest tailwind, the undersupply of homes. That's not gonna get fixed anytime soon, many years before builders are able to catch up with that four or five million homes we are lacking for economic equilibrium. You maybe have said, hey, we can get a lot of money for our house today if we sell it, but then where are you going to go because everything else is expensive as well and there's very little inventory. We're at one of the very lowest levels of inventory relative to population and demand that we've ever seen. That undersupply of housing is going to continue to put upward pressure on residential prices for really the next several years. Home now really becoming a long-term place to also work, also tailwind for home prices because it makes the home, not just the home, but the home plus an office. Now, the unlocking of geography, going from four billion people that have high-speed internet to eight billion people that have high-speed internet, meaning that now you can work from everywhere, including the top of a mountain to the middle of a lake. I think that's going to take some pressure off the real urban city centers because you don't have to live there anymore. and It's going to put a tailwind on prices for more desirable locations that are near the water, better climates, higher or better quality of life that you can also work from as long as you have high-speed internet. I think this is a real tailwind for lower cost, lower tax states. I think this will exacerbate the move from the north of America, particularly the northeast, which are also higher tax states like New York and New Jersey, to lower tax states with higher or better climates like Tennessee, like Florida, like Georgia. Now, headwind for home prices will be rising interest rates. Interest rates really can't go a lot lower than where they are today. So that means mortgage rates will likely rise over the next several years. That's going to put some downward pressure on housing prices. So not every piece of the economic pie here points to higher prices. Put it all together, and I think the general, whether we're talking about up, down, or flat, I think there are very few places in the U.S. that are going to see housing costs go much lower, at least anytime soon. Sure, there'll be pockets in neighborhoods where housing prices fall. But in general, I think housing prices moving materially lower in the vast majority of places in the United States is somewhat off the table. Where we're going to likely see more flat to in line with whatever inflation is, meaning, hey, 2% inflation, housing prices up 2%, similar. Let's call that flat. I think that's the higher cost tax states where people are still moving out of call it New York, New Jersey, most of California that's not on the coast. Those are higher cost states where people are are moving from for economic refuge in a lot of cases. Couple that with higher interest rates and we can see relatively flat home prices. But for the majority of the nation, most states and most geographies, the city, the suburbs, and even outside of the suburbs, I think you're going to see Slightly faster-than-trend home price appreciation over the next several years. So instead of 2% above inflation, maybe 3 or 4 maybe 5%. Until we get the housing undersupply problem corrected. One more thought around housing prices. i constantly getting the question from families, when's the market going to crash? And again, totally logical question because we've seen this huge rise. I look at all of this objectively and all the different data, the inputs and the ingredients in this housing soup or stew, if you will. And I just don't see a overall general crash in housing prices coming unless we go into some sort of massive recession that could always happen for a variety of reasons. We just saw one with COVID. But as long as we don't have an economic disaster, for the very most part, housing prices in the United States will continue to be, and this is just my opinion on this, flat. To above trend. Now that we have all of the data on thinking through housing prices, maybe this will help you understand when it's time to stop renting and go buy, which again, sooner in my opinion is better in buying because again, I don't see housing prices going much lower. But now that we're armed with all of this data and hopefully some perspective, Where are the best places to retire? Bankrate just did their national annual study that tried to answer the question. They included things like affordability, which was 40% of the equation, climate, crime, wellness, and culture. Put it all together and they, they ranked every state in the United States from best place to live as a retiree to absolutely worst place to live as a retiree. I'm not going to go too deep into the methodology, but before I even take these lists seriously, I do look at the appendix first just to see if I agree with the inputs. And I thought the inputs were valid here. So they used different measures for affordability. Of course, taxes is part of that. I like the way they measured wellness and culture and weather and crime. So put it all together, it was this algorithm to figure out best places and worst places to be for retirees. And very simply, I'll get to the punchline here. Number fifty on the list. Who is last? I'm fine with hate mail on this one. I didn't come up with the list. Maryland. Maryland, dead last on the list. Worst place to be as a retiree. Again, it's expensive. There's been a lot of crime. The weather isn't necessarily all that great, I guess. But this is bank rates list, not mine. By the way, I did I talked about this on Money Matters as well, my radio show, and got the most scathing piece of hate mail. It was a hate mail not for the show, but for the state that's number one. Which was almost humorous how much this individual listener disagreed with number one, but I'm gonna go there anyway. Number five on the list. Number five, best place to live is a retiree, Massachusetts. Number four, Missouri. I've spent almost no time in Missouri. Three, and they're the top three. And if we had a drum roll sound effect, I would do it. Number three, Tennessee. That is an affordable state because it's no state income tax. Number two on the list, Florida. Again, another zero state income tax state. Maybe there's a pattern here. And number one on the list, and what I got my hate mail from or for was the state of. Georgia, right here in the state of Georgia. And maybe that's why I like this list so much is that I live in the state of Georgia, I live in Atlanta, and it is a wonderful place to be in almost all categories. And I really notice it when I come back home and I'm in another state, I'm in Arbor and Detroit or I'm in New York, I'm in Philadelphia, I'm in Charlotte. These are all places I've been this past year. And every time I come home to Atlanta, I think, wow, what a clean, beautiful place. The skyline's amazing. The roads are nice. The people are nice. The climate's nice. Pretty affordable relative to these other places. The crime, I think, could be better. But crime in a lot of big cities has been worse post-COVID. I think it's going to get better here. In fact, there's lots of talk in our city and lots of cities around the country on how to crack back down on crime. And wellness as well. Put it all together, I'm not going to disagree with this list at all. Now, I don't know Maryland all that well, but I wouldn't argue that Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, the southeast, and I'm a little biased here, but our doors are open, and we welcome you to the southeast if you're thinking about where to go. So for today, I hope all of this helps you think through this line item that on your personal balance sheet, it's probably 25% of your overall net worth, could be 50%, could be 75% of your overall net worth. So it's just a a massive piece of the equation. and so important as you do your financial planning and you're thinking about retirement or early retirement, your investments and your investment income, that's a huge piece of the equation. When you want to retire, if you're thinking about your overall retirement timeline, your liquid assets and retirement assets, Hugely important. How you invest it? Hugely important. How do you create income from that? Again, hugely important. But the value of your residential real estate, that plus paying off the mortgage, is part of the essential formula of being a happy retiree. All critical to the conversation. I just want to help you put that into perspective as well. Again, talk to your financial advisor about it. Talk to your husband or wife about it. Talk to your kids about housing and housing prices and if you don't have anybody else to talk to you just like another opinion on it we're here as well and by the way we actually we have real life financial advisors in many of these states that are best places to live and pretty good places to live and we're happy to help the retire sooner team can help you think through that overall balance sheet stocks and real estate and then figure out how it weaves into your own retirement timeline you can find our team at westmoss.com, W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. There's a contact button up in the right-hand corner, and those emails come straight to me and the Retire Sooner team. We'd love to hear from you. information.